Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversation. In the sixth episode of A Highly Conversations, we are hosting Vasif Kortun. Not only a colossal figure in the field of contemporary art, but someone who's been very influential in my own work and history as well. Vasif was the founding director of many institutions, but the most significant is probably SALT in Istanbul. He's been engaged with gardening and artificial intelligence lately, but together with him in this episode, we go back and also we discuss the future as we unpack how cultural institutions deal with the digital turn, the future of archives and practices of commissioning cultural work and the integrity of caretaking and craft comes into play here. So let's hear from Mr. Corton himself. Thank you, Vasif, for taking the time to join us. Thank and you, John. I'm going to step right in with some of the questions, and hopefully we will be able to unpack your position and also sometimes diving into history maybe, but kind of thinking in general about cultural practice, the position and the relevance of institutions, and also the question of directing and maybe curating in the cultural realm. But I want to start with this question of the institution, because you have founded and instituted great many number of art and cultural institutions through the years, and literally from the ground up. So if you excuse my metaphor, how do you sow the seeds and in establishing and sustaining and kind of watching and letting an institution grow and evolve? Well, it's, I couldn't give a general answer to that because it's quite, you know, situation and context specific, each institution. It's also time specific, you know, the time in which it, it acts or it, it is supposed to act. So it's complicated to give an overall answer to it. And I would not the same person when I opened one institution and then another, you know, I've changed as well through the, through time as, as institutions it became possible to set up institutions and and uh, one thing of course is that if you're not taking over an institution and reforming it you're shaping it you're quite uh, lucky in the sense that there's no precedence and the only precedence there is is the index or the matrix so to speak by matrix i mean similar institution existing all around the world or in your local habitat uh, that answer to a uh, expected demands, expected uh, requirements, similar kinds of funding structures, and et cetera, et cetera. That did not quite interest me at all. Perhaps the only common denominator between the institutions uh, that I started and I kind of harvested as well. It wasn't only laying the groundwork, but also getting the results, I think, to a degree, is that they were none of them were actually predetermined by a model that was already existing. That is not to say that it did not build on existing models. 
but there wasn't a singularity in terms of modeling. So yeah. even though the tag may have been contemporary art or, or general cultural service institution, et cetera, et cetera, the, the way it was contented and the way it was put together uh, would, always, uh, would always look for novelty. And novelty not as a formalist exercise, but novelty from different angles. Yeah. And also, to a certain extent, disregards to formats or presuppositions or expectations, I think has been a great signifier in your work. And when I was saying grow and evolve, I was obviously also thinking about how Platform started off as an exhibition space and an archive of artists' work and then transformed into an international artist residency where I was also fortunate to have a studio and some of my long-lasting friendships and collaborations like with Jeremiah Day and Selin Condorelli were cemented there to then transmutate to the much more larger scale and exciting institution known as SALT. And all through the years, each of these chapters seemed to have their own values, focus and agenda. And that I think relates with what you said like how you changed, how times changed. And especially at SALT, the great emphasis was given to create a kind of base of knowledge in my observation and the focus on archives, research, grants, the library, and maybe particularly the foregrounding of the digital were signs of this. So in your opinion, what is the next step or what is the future for cultural institutions or art institutions? I mean, it's not something that I'm giving much thought to these days, to be honest with you. And uh, also, I haven't been in the city during the pandemic or in an institution to understand the immediate ramifications of what's happening. But at the same time, I would say that it's uh, this is merely an appetizer or we're just having the teasers right now of what is to come. So the pandemic is not a one-time event. But uh, similar things will arrive afterwards and soon after. I mean, it's not like 40, 50 years now, but the climate crisis and all kinds of things will force uh, institutions as well to rethink uh, themselves. But all that besides, we were at SALT quite ahead of the time, I must say. And ahead of the time in, in so many ways. I'm not saying this with a tint of arrogance or presumptuousness, not at all. And also, I will not claim that we were foreseeing anything or that was a kind of predestination regarding the institution. No, it wasn't that. It was just uh, being ahead of time or being outside the time mean also being, obviously, as we know, being contemporary. That is, in other words, we were able to analyze better the situation we were in and to develop responses to it. And that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. So... For example, the whole thing about digitization and online presence and combining research capacity with online presence. When the pandemic started, nobody at SALT had to switch a button. It was already there. Everything was there. Well, all other institutions, as far as I can see, all around the world were attempting clumsy efforts to save face or at least remain somehow pertinent throughout the last three months. SALT didn't have to do anything. It was just there already. The capacity was there. The online capacity was there. And, but what happened as a result is that, uh, and that suddenly the research capacity was like multiplied enormously, like, like hundreds and hundreds percent more, because people do not realize 
unless there's a moment that pushes them to realize that there is this wealth there that you, they can draw from. So it helped in a way. But it was about being contemporary in a very particular way and being outside the matrix. Yeah. And for a long time, I think everybody was maybe doubting this shift. But as you also put so elaborately, this current condition and this process we are, like the times we are going through, really generated this almost like panic or hastily trying to switch into a digital realm. How did you build it? Because I think it's really fascinating. And how was the commissioning process or how did you envision, I mean, I'm not saying you envisioned the pandemic for sure, but how did you manage, if I may say, it's not maybe the right verb. I don't quite remember how it all came together, but the idea was I don't start with the institution, although my work stems from the institution. I start from the outside. And I imagine a potential public. It doesn't have to be an existing public. It doesn't have to be an existing constituency. It doesn't have to be existing users. But you have to imagine. So while imagining it, you actually produce the public. You help produce the public in a very particular way. So it was very obvious to me that if we were going to go moving online with our archives, with the research capacity, it should be 100% open. Mm-hmm. Our job as institutions is to make sure that it is open. So that, of course, entails a range of difficulties like copyrights and all kinds of copyright issues. But then you have to clear all these copyright issues. It's your job as the institution to make sure that you sign contracts in particular ways that will make this possible. This is one. Second, and I, I remember now a little bit more. And then I was looking at examples, talking to Manolo, Uh, Borjavier at Reina Sofia and and some other people. Manolo, too, at that time was involved in archives from uh, Latin America, very particular sets of archives from Latin America. And he was not claiming ownership over the material, but user rights, which is uh, so the original material remained with the owners, with the right owners in Latin America, Especially if you're Spain, you have to take these things into consideration, being a former colonialist as well, and being such a large institution as, as Reina Sofia, which is practically Europe's biggest modern art museum. So that was an aspect that I was trying to process. Like Asia Art Archive uh, was also open. So that was another uh, example. Those were the kinds of things that I was actually studying. I tried to push that a little bit further by making all of the research capacity, you know, I mean, archives fully public, which still we are, I think SALT is the only institution in the world that puts 100% in users' hands. And it is impossible to understand that. It is impossible to understand the ramifications of that. Imagine if the British Museum or the Library of Congress or the New York Public Library put everything 100% online and say, like, you can use this. Because what happens normally is that the stuff that we research uh, through Google or through browsers is limited to materials that is already made public. So you can't really access the full contents of the British Museum or New York Public Library of any of these. I mean, New York Public Library opened its archives very recently, but you have to have a New York zip code and proof of residency to use it. That has always been hard for me to understand. You know, I believe in the user 
and I believe in 21st century, 22nd century models. I don't think that we as caretakers of archives, caretakers of common memory of the world, we cannot put them in vaults and claim some kind of dubious ownership over them because it does not belong to us. We are merely caretakers. I know that enormous energy went into also not only acquiring or reaching to certain archives, but also digitizing all these kind of physical elements. And is there a certain procedure how you dealt with that? I mean, we made a lot of mistakes on the road. Some of them were not inevitable. <laughs> I would say they were just mistakes. I mean, I mean, I personally, I don't believe in mistakes so much. I think there a lot of things can be predicted. You can be quite predictive about certain things, but these were really uh, wrong because, uh, not because, and let's not talk about the because of it. That's not so interesting. I'm not trying to make excuses. The history is not as finite as we think. There's a lot of material. How do you pass to the future what you think is important without being a gatekeeper, uh, without necessarily being a gatekeeper? So you have to imagine beyond your desires, needs, and use values. So we sometimes did over-scanned, over-archived, which was not really necessary. With digital-born archives, this is also already the major problem because yeah. it's just too much of nothing. Uh, I mean, that that's one aspect. Secondly, uh, it's all about the way you read history, the, re- the way you read past. So it's a selective process. Yeah. I mean, there are many things you're missing, but you have to make a story at the end of the day. It's just the stories have to multiply in the sense that you, know, you cannot say that, you know, Salt's archive is objective to late 19th century Istanbul life or after 50s modern life in Turkey. It, it's not. It is a subjective process. But what it does, it builds around what it has or builds around its strong points to make a more coherent, applicable history. But at the same time, I think a valuable thing that our colleagues, my colleagues were doing, this wasn't my doing at all, is to look at minor histories mm-hmm. and uh, histories of families and things that are not looked at that seem to be at the margin of the big events. Nevertheless, affected by big events, but it's not through that lens that you look at history, which is quite valuable. But each component of research had its own weaknesses and strong points. It's just, you know, architecture is another story, art is another story, social life is another story. Now we're beginning to see how they come together in very particular ways. Maybe just to come back to the critical part of your question is that I'm really a complete skeptic of archivists Mm -hmm. uh, or the archival profession as we know it. I think because this is where metadata is made and given our current tools, the only way you can access something is through its metadata. And any ideological, any subjectivity, which is all subjective, by the way, all subjectivity, all ideological bends, all mistakes, everything, every problem that occurs at the metadata level affects the user. Yeah. Uh, so my obsession still is, I hope we'll get there soon, is to get rid of uh, metadata and access the data directly through AI operations and and, and neural networks. And that the archivists are no longer 
the people who enter the information, but a look at the results of the information and just check on it. And build the narratives from there on? Because what you were describing as the selective responsibility also means that there is always, a, as you said, a narrative that is being kind of scripted and re-scripted. And perhaps I was thinking it's more important thing is to, in a way, embrace or come to terms with the fact that it is a selective and subjective process. And uh, that's what maybe minor histories are starting to do as well, like treat it as a more, in a way, not singular, but a kind of subjective or related to subjectivity, in a sense. It would be beautiful. I mean, that's really great, which is done in the art world quite a bit, but not in the archival world, you know. Imagine, imagine this. we look at the same object and we look at the object's metadata as it was built in 1920s and 50s and now, and look at the difference between how that object was registered, how it was worked and how it was, uh, you know, appointed to particular use and etc. I mean, that would be amazing to look at that. I don't know if anybody has done it. I'm sure yeah. someone is thinking about it, but it'd be quite interesting. And it's even kind of reaches out to the how we are also going through a time where we are questioning the values, like you mentioned, the colonial structures or the status given to certain objects or how certain ob- objects were extracted or appropriated. But maybe we can move on to the more physical environment side of things, because I want to also ask you about commissioning and practices of commissioning. I mean, through the years, you've commissioned many artists, also maybe researchers, but also designers. And for example, I'm thinking of the interiors of SALT, how it was articulated by, I guess it was six different designers. And through the years, maybe you commissioned some more spaces. So the physical environment and also maybe not only physical environment, but the process of commissioning and working with other creatives or other individuals or groups? Yeah, that's a great question. And let me look at it from a, I mean, let me try to look at it from a distance, which is still, I mean, at the moment, it's still hard to do. But the way, I mean, I wasn't the only person who was putting the whole thing together, but the way I was approaching the institutions that how can we have this kind of large scale institution but act in coordinated but in small ways mm-hmm. and an aspect of it is of course the architectural program and the program should it only be run by one person i mean uh, should it only be managed by one architect seemed somehow problematic to me because the institution itself was not one it was a combination of different knowledge fields, a combination of uh, different architectures historically, you know, the original building and then the renovations that appeared throughout this time, all kinds of uh, patchwork. Yeah. And a uh, well-known story, and I was in, a, I think I was in Arco, uh, for Arco in Madrid in, in, a, in February at the art fair, and they made me stay in a hotel, which was uh, seven or eight floors, maybe more, and each floor was uh, by a different architect, by a different star architect, you know, from Zaha Hadid to uh, whatever. And I thought that was really very, very quite interesting. I mean, I didn't like the hotel at all. And of course, I mean, hotel means standardization, you know, in terms of the service stuff and for, for everything, for plumbing, for, like you can imagine, and, and the kind of risk they may have taken to do such a strange bird. But 
I came back home and to my colleague Pelin Darwish uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. We were mainly thinking together with Pelin and marriage a little bit with November and my, our colleagues through this process. And I said, I came back and said, like, what if we actually commissioned different function parts of the building to different architects and designers? And then the architect who is Hunt Mertikin accepted the idea and we got the bank to approve it, which was the craziest part, of course, because this is not the kind of thing one would in their right mind do. To have one architect is already hard enough. Having uh, seven altogether is, is kind of impossible. But what that did for us is we learned, we as caretakers, people in the institution learned so well about the spaces, the problems of the spaces. We had to describe our needs very, very precisely. We had to think through with each designer architect how to move and also work with younger generational groups to create different possibilities, capacities for the younger generation. And also we had to negotiate spaces between spaces. You know, where are the thresholds between thought research, which is done by one architect, and the traffic, and the regular traffic spaces and transition spaces and, and whatnot? And how do you do that? And is it going to be a fight? Is it going to be a, a friction between? Is it going to be a smooth passage? And a side aspect of all of this was to make... A, I don't say this with a nationalist bent or, or at all, but made in Turkey, original design. What if we can produce uh, new types of uh, conference chairs? What if we can produce, what if we, we can recommission uh, work from the 50s, which happened actually, now it's Knollis, Knollis sell, selling it. All kinds of things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's about developing technology too, as you go along. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah I mean, that was it. I mean, it was a responsible idea in a way. It uh, made me own the space much in a much more uh, intimate uh, way. I mean, for me, yeah. it was, of course, in a very selfish way, it was great. For those who are not familiar with the building, it's also, on the one hand, there is the building itself. The existing architecture itself has a very significant kind of statement of its own, which is the former bank's of the Ottoman Empire, the central bank building. And on top of it, it layers a plurality, also formal, visual, environment, physical, uh, spatial voices, which is also, now that you mentioned the thresholds or the in-between spaces, I'm also more and more observing as the library got more popular, those thresholds are also being put to use by the users themselves. So through time, there is also probably a feedback to the institution and where you have to maybe readjust those threshold spaces or those in-between spaces as well. Yeah, it's all backpropagation, basically, you know, in a, in a very fundamental way. Yeah, you, cool. you had to. I mean, but isn't this what normally it's all about anyhow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that it should be. It's, it's, I think it's a no-brainer. I'm not saying anything intelligent or, or, or smart, but I think uh, most institutions are just very stupid, unfortunately. You mean for insisting on a statement and yeah. not getting feedback? Or? And sticking with it. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, a lot of things helped, of course. I mean, you may remember our best friend, Hussein Aptikin, and the notion of democratic luxury, you know. I mean, I took his notion of democratic luxury and tried to apply it to to the culture of the building. Yeah. 
yeah. that's how things work. Definitely. It's a, also a good concept to commemorate him. Uh, you mentioned the the international, in a way, dialogue with, for example, the Reina Sofia, and also the internal relationships with backers, funders, supporters, and users. So one thing I want to maybe dive into with you is the question of networks. So networks on the one hand, maybe sometimes formalized between institutions like the Le Internationale uh, network you were part of, or also more interpersonal networks that generate a kind of fluid knowledge transfer amongst peers and also amongst cultural producers. So this is one topic we can go into. And the other topic is also networks that you need to make things possible or that you maybe needed in the past to make things possible in terms of support, in terms of establishing such huge projects, whichever one you want to go into, either one is good. I would say that with salt, we killed the notion of networks for us. It was it was no more about networks. You know, networks is a early 90s and 2000s firm uh, has been occupied by uh, different concerns and it has become a complete neoliberal, had become a complete mm-hmm. uh, neoliberal op- operation and networks and networking. And I mean, there's a, there's a whole generation of artists yeah. and culture producers who who live on that. And I think they've taken the hardest hit with the pandemic in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. still do things yeah. online, but uh, that's, yeah. I'm by more than networks. I mean, for example, I mean, internationally, we moved to the notion of confederation. Mm-hmm. It's not merely a change of language, but it's it's more about it's about the way you do things and working with a common, in a broad way, common concern. And if not common ideology, it's common concern. And applying the confederation's knowledge in a horizontal way so that people in the confederation learn from their colleagues uh, from their colleagues as well. I don't know if it's successful or not. We tried uh, mm-hmm. in the past. It's a, it's a complicated operation because whenever there is very strong intelligence and coming together, things are never easy, nor should they uh, be, be, be easy. There's great museum directors that you have the luxury of working with. And uh, in a time uh, where all of these directors are compromised or endangered one way or other. So not networks by confederations or different forms of working together. And I'm, I should say perhaps what really made us different in terms of the way we work is we don't even answer if somebody says to us, we didn't, we didn't like, let's work together. And we never responded to people if they were actually halfway through a project and they were looking for a partner. Mm-hmm. We want to be at the root level. We want to start with the first question. And I mean, second part, not coming into a project later, because I find that a very colonialist attitude, yeah. which Europeans are just not able to get rid of, unfortunately. You mean the let's find a partner? Yeah, let's find a partner. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> let's find a partner, fill in the right, uh, you know, blanks, and it will be great because we have someone from, I don't know, from a different part of uh, the world, and that's not how you make connectivities. You know? yeah. It's out of need, it's out of things that you do not know that other people know. But it also, I mean, the main thing here is, John, I think, is trust. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Trust is quite critical. Trust never fails. I mean, you have to trust the user. 
You have to trust the constituency. You have to trust that, uh, I always say this, that the knowledge outside the institution is much more uh, deep than from that, that from the knowledge that come from that can come from inside the institution. So you have to understand the importance of collectivity, but also make room for brilliance. I think workshops, now workshops before project projects uh, was such a collaboration mm-hmm. when we started working with them on on our no de-branded no logo institution. Yeah, and also maybe that partly replies my initial question about the commission. This commissioning uh, works, and this question of trust is so integral to that as well. And to my defense, I wasn't referring to networking, but more trying to find a phrase that would allow to map out the reality of having to have certain connections, kinship, collectivity, solidarity at times. So that was what I was referring to. But now that we come to your sensitivity about the phrase and language, you said it's not only about the language, but language is obviously super integral and important. When I think of you, like one of the main, not only me, probably for everyone, is the relationship to language and the terminology and For example, not even the translation, but the transcreation of the term contemporary for the Turkish language, both in action and in language. Or similarly, like the first time you invited me to a project and you were the first person to ever invite me to any exhibition. (laughs) So there in the Istanbul Contemporary Art Project back in 98, you had the definition of the term curator as part of the display. And that, for example, was not only a signifier, but framing the discussion around what the project and what the exhibition was probably about. And also the first time possibly the the word was introduced in the Istanbul context. How do you see curating and is there a future for it? You already mentioned caretaking and trust, but what else is there for curating to exist in the next century, if at all? I really don't know. I really don't know because I'm not paying much attention to it. I mean, other things are occupying my mind at this moment. So I've taken a step away from it. I couldn't answer your question, but yeah, I mean, I'd rather not talk yeah. about curating. No comment. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's... Uh... It was never my intention to curate when I started. You know, I was doing regular artistry trying to write a little and I was imagining a life in a little bit teaching, a little bit uh, writing and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, for curating for me was originally a way to use a medium that would be so much more effective than writing about it Mm. or basically historicizing it and whatnot. So the way I started doing exhibitions originally, I, th- I can't say it for everything I've done, not at all. I mean, I think, uh, you make a lot of not so interesting things as well in life, but it was a necessity. That was like 91, uh, I think, with Memory Collection 1. That's the first exhibition. And that's where I used the term curator in a very clear way. And I think that was the first curated, so you may say, exhibition. Uh, in Turkey. I mean, there's always curatorial work, uh, yeah. but it was presented also as such. There was something the art was doing and there was something else that I was doing. 
but I'm more interested in, in the notion of craft these days. Mm-hmm. And craft not as in uh, merely as making uh, things with your hand, which is also absolutely critical, but the idea of uh, craft is in becoming really adept at mm-hmm. doing something. And, yeah. and I kind of appropriated this from the world's best chip maker, computer chip maker, and he is, I forgot his name, but I mean, the man makes chips, yes? He's behind the best chips in the world. He worked all of the big companies from Intel to Tesla and et cetera, et cetera. He was the chief of the autonomous driving policy and all of that. So, and he talks about the idea of craft. And I thought that was really brilliant. And he basically meant that you look at something from outside, inside, from all angles, learn how to work with that tool that is in your hands and, and hone that tool. And as you hone that tool, you you change, you're transformed as well. So that is not something we pay much attention to these days because we're moving fast and uh, on and on to other projects, not to criticize you at all, but we network and we, we, we spend time on things that are completely not necessary, especially now, which we found out. And to be really take apart things and put them together again. I mean, I'm, I think that's much more critical right now. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm doing now in the garden, for example. I'm, I'm trying to develop a new craft. And that doesn't mean just going out in the garden and, you know, uh, digging every day. It means looking, for example, looking long and carefully at things. Yeah. And also repetition, probably. Established routines around that process around that site or around that tool. And what you're rightful about is that it doesn't only apply to tools we craft with, but tools we use as well. Like the moment we encounter and we start using them, we are also being transformed. But in craft, maybe there is the potential to transform the tool as well as being transformed together with the tool. And that's a beautiful metaphor and analogy. It was a real valuable session. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Have a nice day. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure you check out the episode notes to find out about the works that we discussed in this episode. And you can also visit us at ahali.online for further information. And please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. So hope to see you next time.